0: Of the so-called seven deadly sins, anger is probably the most fun of all of them, especially when it's justified, especially when it's revenge, because revenge is one of those things that somehow we feel the other person deserves. That's why they get it. By the way, one man named his new product revenge. It cost $3.99. It seems that this guy that I read about was tired of having smokers blow their smoke around and irritate his eyes and his nose and so forth. So he developed a smowl, a uh, smowl, felling, and also a foul-smelling disinfectant. And it's, it's a little bottle, it's 75 squirts, that blows bad air bad smelling air that irritates the nose and the eyes of the smoker. It's to get back at them. And so he calls it revenge. It reminds me of that Charlie Brown cartoon where Linus says to Lucy, I love mankind. It's just the people I can't stand. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of truth in that. It's easy to talk about loving humanity as a whole. But when it gets down to loving your neighbor as yourself... That's tough. It's especially tough when you're called not just to love your neighbor as yourself, but to love your enemies, as Jesus Christ tells us to do. And in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, David gives us a lesson in loving our enemies. Here's the strange part. His lifelong enemy is his own father-in-law. His own relative, Saul who brought his daughter to David to marry, turned against David very quickly and chases David through all of his life, his own relative, out to kill him. Reminds me of this uh, story that I read about. This guy's driving down the street in his car and he sees something unusual. A long procession of people walking in the middle of the road, single file. He'd never seen anything like it. And then finally, he drives by 100, 200, counts about 300 of them. The line stops. In front of the line is a hearse. In front of the hearse is another hearse. In front of the second hearse is a limousine, black limousine that has stopped the drivers changing the tire. He'd never seen anything like this. He pulls his car over, goes over to the limousine, knocks on the window, window goes down, a man in a black suit is sitting there with a dog next to him. He says, excuse me, but this is the strangest thing funeral I have ever seen. What's going on? The man in the black suit and the limousine said, Well, in the first hearse was my dear wife killed by this dog sitting next to me, our dog. And the man who asked the question said, I- I'm terribly sorry. Forgive me. I I had no idea. But what about the second hearse? And the man said, Well, the second hearse is is my mother-in-law, also killed by this dog sitting next to me. Now the man feels very ashamed, embarrassed, stunned, and he says, I'm sorry, forgive me. And he walks away, and just as he's walking away, catches himself, and he goes back to the man in the limousine and says, Pardon me, but do you think it's possible that I could borrow your dog for a while? (laughs) And the man in the limousine says, Stand in line. Now David has about 3,000 men, we'll read in verse 2. 3,000 men standing in line to kill him. Saul's whole army is amassed to go find David and to kill the king's son-in-law. Now Jesus did say in the Sermon on the Mount, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We know the verse. looks good on paper. But to actually do that separates the men from the boys, you might say. In fact, we would look at that verse that Jesus said, Love your enemies in, and we'd say, How? Why? More fun to be angry at them. More fun to get even with them. How do I love my neighbor as myself? How do I love my enemy? And bless those who curse me. Revenge is so much like poison. Every time we desire to get even with someone, that's exactly what we do. We're even with them. We descend to their level instead of rising above their level. And this is something David refuses to do. And so as we look at this chapter today, it's a fast-moving chapter, but we see some elements in handling your enemies. First of all, retaliation is expected. That's what the world would expect. Second, restoration is expedient. It's most beneficial. And finally, righteousness is effective, as we'll see the results. Let's look at the first three verses of this chapter. And look at the, uh, the opportunity for retaliation. And it was expected by his men. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. Notice this David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. This is David's opportunity for revenge. Let me paint the picture. En Gedi is a very desolate place. We take our, our groups, our tours to Israel. We always stop at En Gedi. It is uh, at the Dead Sea, which is 1,300 feet below sea level, very hot, very desolate. David's hiding from Saul. You know, you'd think especially back then when there are no modern devices for tracking that you could easily run away from someone and never be spotted. What I find interesting in verse 1 is that David leaves, goes down to En Gedi, and Saul's men know exactly where he's at. They're watching him like a hawk. The enemy is watching him carefully. Remember this is a series on movers and shakers. People of influence. Did you know that scrutiny is a part of influence? If you are a person that influences other people, like David did his own kingdom, you're going to have people watching you like a hawk, especially your enemies. Nobody notices the couch potato. Nobody cares. But people of influence, people who move and shake their culture, who influence other people for the right reason, like David did, will be watched That's why we must walk circumspectly, Paul said, not as fools, but as wise. David will do that beautifully in this chapter. Look at verse 2. Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel. And he went to seek David and, notice, his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Now, if you go back to chapter 23, verse 13, it says David and his men, about 600. 3,000. To 600. Five to one, they're outnumbered. Now this is no question meant to intimidate. Intimidate. Outnumber them. They'll feel intimidated. They'll give in. Intimidation is one of the the cleverest tools used by our enemy. The devil uses it all the time to intimidate Christians. You've all noted it. You look at the world, there's so many unbelievers. It seems there's so few of us in comparison to so many of them, and yet so many of them haven't heard the gospel, and we think, oh, what's the use? I can't even make a dent in my culture. Or we're in a classroom. We're outnumbered by unbelieving students. We're afraid to speak up because we're outnumbered. Truth is, you are outnumbered. Jesus said you would be. In fact, listen to what he said about that and take comfort in the fact that you're outnumbered. He said, narrow is the gate that leads to life and very few enter therein. Broad is the road that leads to destruction and many, in fact, the original word would be most enter therein. You are outnumbered. But you know what? Given the future, I'd rather be outnumbered. If it's true, and we believe it is, that Many people enter into the broad gate of destruction, eternal separation from God, and only a few get into heaven. I'd rather be outnumbered. The Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, said, Little children, we know we are of God, and the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, under the sway of the wicked one. Yes, we are outnumbered. You know what, though? I think... God sort of intended it that way. Because when you're outnumbered and the temptation is there to be intimidated, that's when you trust God all the more. Psalm 61, David said, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Drives us to God like nothing else. But intimidation can freeze a believer like a deer is frozen by headlights. So, Here he is, intimidated, so many people. Verse 3, this is interesting. He came to the sheepfolds by the road, this is Saul, where there was a cave. Now it just sounds like, oh, it's just kind of a, a normal everyday occurrence. I'll pick that cave, not knowing who's inside. Saul went in to attend to his needs. He's, what we would say, using the restroom. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Get the picture. Saul's going in to relieve himself, not knowing there's 600 people in the restroom. <laughs> this is David's golden opportunity. For the first time, King Saul is more vulnerable than ever before in his life. There's David, his hunted enemy. And perhaps at that point, as Saul comes in and he's attending to his needs, David is thinking, back to those spears that were flung at him. And perhaps he's thinking back to the time his father-in-law Saul sent him off to the Philistine army in hopes that he would be killed. And he's thinking, this is it. This is the time. I'm going to kill this guy. Be very easy. You know it to be true. Vengeance is one of those emotions That we find it very easy to rationalize. I do when I drive. And I think, what I'm about to do to this driver, he deserves. It's so easy to rationalize that kind of stuff. Doug Gerald once said If I were a grave digger or even a hangman, there are some people I could work for with a great deal of pleasure. Here comes King Saul. This guy hates my guts. He used his own daughter to entrap me. He's tried to kill me on many occasions. He's after me again with 3,000 people. And he's all alone in a very vulnerable spot. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth, we call it. Limb for limb. Give them what they deserve. Even the score. You know, that's the philosophy of the carnal, not the spiritual person. Because the spiritual person understands... That universally mankind is depraved. The spiritual person has enough realization to understand that the same nature that beats in the heart of King Saul beats in the heart of every single individual on earth capable of doing anything, given the right opportunity. David understood that. Here's his opportunity. Let's compound the problem. Look at verse 4. He has a little peer pressure. Then the men of David said to him, Now listen to their advice. This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Did you listen to those men? To them it seems coincidental, even providential that God set this up. Now, I want you to notice that they look at this situation and interpret it wrongly. And infer that because this has happened in this manner, this has got to be the Lord allowing you to kill your enemy. Now, I find this a mistake all too common among even believers, especially young, superstitious believers. They will look at a situation... And blame God in a sense. Infer that God's will is somehow mysteriously woven through this and and this is wrong. Maybe they, maybe they get a flat tire on the freeway. The car breaks down and they see that as a sign from God to get a new car. Maybe, maybe it is. Or maybe He wants you to fix it and learn a little patience. Or a guy's going down the street and a young girl smiles at him. And he thinks, oh, it's a sign from God. She's the one. Why? Because she's smiling. Yo, nobody else does? No. <laughs> All I'm saying is be very careful how you interpret signs. They interpreted this wrongly. Surely this is from God. David didn't see it that way. I think God gets blamed for all sorts of stuff he has nothing to do with. But here's David. Golden opportunity. Add to that the temptation of his friends saying, go ahead, this is God doing this. So easy for him to be like Pontius Pilate. Remember Pilate as he stood before Jesus? I look at it that way. Instead of Jesus standing before him, Pilate was really on trial. What shall I do with this Christ, this man who says he's the Messiah? And he's wrestling with that And the sad text of Scripture says, And the voices of the men and the chief priests prevailed. He gave in to the crowd. The peer pressure was too much. So easy for this to happen with David. Come on, David. Kill him. Go for it. Now, he cuts a corner off of his robe. And look at verse 5. I say that this is the deterrent for revenge right here. It happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he cut Saul's robe. Now, it sounds to us almost laughable. The guys say, kill him. He goes, okay, man, I have just enough courage to take a little bit of his robe. And they go, oh, I took his robe, man. I cut his robe. He feels shaken because of it. And he said to the man, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David restrained his servants with these words. Did not allow them to rise against Saul, and Saul got up from the cave and he went on his way. David has a tender conscience, right? It's obvious. He's sensitive to what we would say are little sins. Okay, cut a little bit of his robe off. We'd say, big deal. But to him, it was a big deal. This tender conscience, I say, is a good thing. You know why? Because once you rationalize stealing one paper clip from your company, soon it won't bother you to take 10 bucks or even 10,000 eventually. It starts with the little stuff. That row belongs to the king. He's still the king. He's still God's anointed. I'm not going to do it. It's wrong. And that tender conscience will keep you from crossing the line that is so often blurred in our society. Paul the Apostle listened well to his words. He said, I always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Folks, hand in hand with having a heart for God is having a conscience that is tuned in to the Lord, His will. Your conscience is a gift from God if if it's tuned right. And that is a condition. You see, some people have an oversensitive conscience, right? They're guilty about everything. Somebody says something to them, they get out of bed in the morning, they feel bad, they feel guilty. I've, I've blown it. An oversensitive conscience is usually one that has been tuned into man-made rules and regulations or unrealistic expectations because they never fulfill those from other people they feel guilty. That's oversensitive conscience. Other people have an insensitive conscience. That is, they ought to feel guilty, but they don't. They do something. Guilt should be the natural response. But because they have learned to rationalize, they feel no pain any longer. The Bible speaks about those folks. Paul talked about those whose conscience is seared with a hot iron. Dangerous place to be in. By the way, the word seared in that verse is the Greek word cauterized. Just like a surgeon would take a cauterizing tool to coagulate blood, to cauterize a tissue and when tissue is cauterized it becomes hard and insensitive to touch people cauterize themselves by rationalizing things they do wrong but then there's the tuned conscience not oversensitive not insensitive but i call it a tuned conscience a healthy sense of right and wrong david had that it's not my robe it's his robe i cut a piece off of it it's his it's his duds man i ruined his clothes it's not mine. It's his. doesn't belong to me. He's the king. What I love about David is that who Saul was didn't change who David was. Again, it's easy to justify vengeance. It's easy to say, you know, I never was this way before this guy was after me. But self-preservation, you know, I've changed a little bit over the years because Saul's been after me for so long. Who Saul was, his enemy, didn't change who David was. I heard about a man who was opening a door for a young lady to go through into an office building. She was the woman-lib type, and she said, Don't open the door for me just because I'm a woman. He said, No, ma'am, I'm opening the door because I'm a gentleman. It's who he was. This is who David was. It's like the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer goes up and down depending on the weather around it. Thermostat regulates the temperature. David regulated the temperature in that cave. He cooled it down. They were ready to kill him. And did you notice it says in verse 7 that David restrained even them, his men from killing Saul? Not just restrained himself. Like a good thermostat, he restrained them from this deed. Now, Verse 8 is where the whole story begins to change. I mentioned that the first great truth here is that retaliation is expected. Everybody said, this is from God. Go for it, man. But in contrast to that, restoration is expedient. Now look at verse 8, how it changes. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord... The king. Four short words. Full of love, full of respect. My Lord the King, not Hey, you dirty dog chasing me like this. Why I oughta. He says, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, get this David stooped with his face to the earth, and he bowed down. He put himself in a vulnerable position. The point is, with respect, David showed love. Can you see David running out of the cave waving that little piece of cloth? My Lord the King! And then as Saul turns around, he bows down to him. Why is this unusual? Because usually, in a fight, in an adversarial situation, people have no respect for each other. They just let the words fly, the voices raise, the anger seethe, and it gets worse. This guy has four kind words. My Lord, the King. It reminds me of Proverbs 10. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. I'll I'll paraphrase that. A closed mouth gathers no feet. He was cautious with his words. My Lord, the King, he says. Why does he show respect? Why does he bow? The answer is simple. David loved Saul. You say he loved Saul? Oh, yes. He loved Saul. I didn't say he liked Saul. I don't like Saul. We read this. None of us like Saul. David didn't, but he loved him. You see, this is is not depending on his emotions at the time. He doesn't feel real ooey-gooey towards Saul. There's no great emotion of, of love, but he loves him. He makes a choice. It's not dependent on his feelings. Do you know that if love was dependent upon your feelings, you probably would sell them love? Oh, you'd love sometimes. You feel like it today, you do it. She was so nice. Oh. If David depended on his feelings, he would not bow. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, and this is where David's at, love your enemy. Do good. And he does. I read an interesting study done by Kenyon College. They said that when somebody is shouted at, he cannot help but shout back. That typically a raised voice engenders more volume from the other voices. One of the people who took part in that study, Les Giblin, said, quote, You can use this scientific knowledge to keep another person from becoming angry, controlling the other person's tone of voice by your own voice. Studies have proved that if you keep your voice soft, you will not become angry. Psychology has accepted as scientific the old biblical injunction, a soft answer turns away wrath. Do you respect authority like David respected My Lord, the King. When the policeman pulls you over and writes you the ticket and you're praying for a warning and he goes, "Uh uh-uh. Do you respect that authority? The teacher in the classroom that you disagree with. Assignment's too tough. He or she didn't quite cut it right when it came to you. Do you respect that person? David did. With respect, he showed love. Next, with honesty, he set the record straight. He didn't stop by just bowing. Look at verse 9. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, that someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, that I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. You see what's happening? David loved his enemy as an act of his own will and obedience to God. At the same time, he confronted his enemy. He was wronged by Saul. He just didn't sit back in the cave and say, Well, leave well enough alone. Don't stir anything up. Rather, with respect he shows love. But then he says, Saul, you're wrong. You're wronging me and you've listened to the wrong people. I'm not going to rebel against you. Do you know that this is... Typical human tendency to avoid. Nobody likes confrontation. If you're sane, if you're wise, you don't look for a fight. And the typical human tendency is, I won't confront, just say nothing. But do you know that that's unbiblical? Where there's ongoing sin, it has to be confronted. That's what Jesus Christ, your Savior and mine, commanded us. Matthew 18, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him, get this, alone. That's the mistake we usually make right there, the alone part. We want to tell 10, 12 people first until somebody has the guts to say, Have you confronted that person one-on-one? Oh, not yet. Do it. Then Jesus said, If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Here's the point. Honest confrontation is needed where sin is ongoing. Yes, even among friends. May I remind you of Proverbs 27 that says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. An enemy will stab you in the back. A friend will carefully stab you in the front. That's a friend. Have the guts and love enough to confront you where sin is ongoing. Nathan did to King David. We'll read later on. David became an adulterer. Nathan the prophet pointed his finger at him and said, You are the one. Confrontation. Loving but definite confrontation. Paul the apostle will do it to Peter the apostle. When Peter plays the hypocrite, and he'll schmooze with the Gentiles until the Judaizers come, and then he'll pretend like he doesn't like the Gentiles and schmooze with the other group. In Galatians chapter 2, 11, Paul said, I opposed Peter, get this, face to face because he was clearly in the wrong. And a loving Christian will do it when somebody else is clearly in the wrong. And folks, let me tell you something. The only people that will not understand that kind of activity is either an unbeliever or a very immature believer who will look at that and say, that's not loving. One of the most loving things you can do is to tell people the truth. And David tells Saul the truth. With great respect, he loved him. With great honesty, he confronted. And also with integrity, he entrusted Saul to God. Look at verse 12. Let the Lord judge between you and me. Let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. He refuses to act personally. And then again in verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, Wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. Folks, that's integrity. It takes integrity to withhold retaliation. It takes only immaturity to go through with it. We learned that since we were kids. She pulls my hair, I'll rip a chunk of hers out. That's what we learned since we were little. Anyone immature can retaliate. Takes integrity to say, nope, my hand shall not be against you. I read something interesting that happened uh, in Tokyo. I read it this week. Don't know exactly when it happened, but the police arrested a man who 14 years ago was refused entrance into graduate school. From that day, 14 years ago, he made about 10 phone calls a day for 14 years. Between 8 o'clock in the evening to 2 o'clock in the morning to the professor, to hassle the professor whom he felt was responsible for not giving him admittance. Well, the police finally caught up with him. They traced it down. He tried it from several different angles, different places. They caught him and, and they figured that those 14 years he made about 50000 Annoying phone calls. That's a grudge. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, He who seeks revenge always digs two graves. Not only the person you're after, but your own. In fact, the only person that really gets eaten alive by it is is the guy doing it. So David said, My hand shall not be against you. And notice how he entrusts the king to God. Verse 14, after whom is the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? I mean, I'm nothing to you. You, you, I'm easy pickings. Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. I like that. He, He lets God be God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I shall repay. You know, God will always do a better job than you can. Let God handle them. But I have my rights. Yeah, you do. But watch what God can do. I had a friend who told me something I'll never forget. He said, if you want to defend yourself, God will let you. I never forgot that. If you want to defend yourself, God will let you. I'd rather let God be my defense. David did. David did. My hand shall not be against you. Let the Lord judge between me and you. Good advice. You see the contrast? David's men are doing, Get him, David. Get him, David. Get him, David. David saying, Get him, God. Let the Lord do this. And trusted him. Do you have any attackers in your life? Any antagonists in your life? Any enemy types? People who are trying to slander you or say things? Remember these three words. Honesty. Respect, integrity. Yeah, but they're trying to ruin me. Honesty, respect, integrity. I know it's more fun to make 50,000 phone calls. Feels good. It's not worth it. Want to see the result of all this? Look at verse 16. We see that righteousness is effective. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. Now, almost incredulously, he asks in verse 19, For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Genuine love and forgiveness is liberating. It absolutely blows people's minds, especially when they realize it was within your power and your rights to retaliate. But for the sake of being a witness, you refused. Makes a great impact, as it does here. Retaliation costs. Righteousness and restoration pays rich dividends. You can think, I'm sure right now in your mind, of several examples, maybe in your own life, how anger, unforgiveness, words seething from your lips have ruined relationships. You've watched it. You've heard it. Respect has been torn. Marriages have been busted. Long-term friendships shattered. Shattered. Compare that to what you read here. David in restoration and in righteousness. So that Saul says, you're more righteous than I am. There's one proverb that comes to mind that I think is sort of the banner over this. It's the fulfillment of that proverb. Proverbs 16:7, that says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Wow. It happened. You read it. Saul repents, albeit it won't be for long. He'll be after him again. But what a difference this makes. And that will continue to be David's posture throughout his life. I want to close with a letter that I received from a gentleman in our fellowship confessing his own dark period with unforgiveness and hatred. As you read it, you're going to think he had a right to be angry. He had a right to seek revenge. But listen to it. Dear Skip, for years I was absorbed in a hatred that almost consumed me. Until I was seven years old, I lived a normal life with my parents. My father was a successful businessman and a landowner in the Philippines. Everything I learned about duty, honor, responsibility, respect for authority, etc., I learned from that man. I adored him. Then the Japanese came. To this day... I can still visualize and hear the screams and the cries of women ages 7 to 70 being raped and finally killed, the cries and moans of men being tortured to death. In the following three and a half years, my life became worthless. I had forgotten how to feel. My heart turned to stone. I became a killer, an assassin, a torturer, worse than the Japanese Two months before liberation, my father was captured. They tortured him for four days, and they finally killed him. I never cried again. I lost my soul. I hated them. During the ensuing years, that was the one thing that ruled my life. In everything I did, in the forefront of my mind was, how am I going to get even? How can I settle this score? Not satisfied with hating a nation of a hundred million people, I included everyone that caused me pain. Then, one evening, during a prayer meeting that I attended, someone said, Tonight, let's talk about forgiveness. I was trapped. I wanted to run, but my legs wouldn't move. Hot, bitter tears poured down. I thought I was going to die. The pain was that intense. But I knew I didn't want to die without Jesus. I poured out everything. I can tell you, Skip... It was not time that healed my wounds. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that finally healed me of this hatred. The one thing I've learned was God couldn't do any of his great works in me till I got rid of everything that displeases him. And I do not want to displease him anymore. Think of that in terms of David. He's on the way up. He's going to become somebody. He's the next king. But this encounter was needed. Something had to really be rooted out. The opportunity was there for revenge. guy said, go for it. I feel bad, said David, that I just cut off that corner of his robe. It belongs to the king. And he honored him, loved him. Confronted him, yes, but showed integrity and trusted him to God. And it made a great impact on his enemy. So, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, looks Great on paper. Looks better when we bind it with shoe leather and we walk it. Lord, help us to do that. You created us. You watched the fall. And you understand that human tendency, the natural human tendency, is to seek revenge, to enjoy the many phone calls, to love the gossip. That is natural. It is certainly not supernatural. And we confess, Lord, we need Your grace. We need Your strength because we all have relationships with people that, well, we don't like. But we are called to love. We admit it's impossible without Your help. So help us. And Lord, thank You for Your incredible example that while we were Your enemies, You sent Jesus to die for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.